So for those of you who are relatively new to retreat, you're probably getting a sense of the progression of uh, how retreats unfold. Um, So many people were struggling on the first and second days of what Howie was talking about last night of what's called classically or called the hindrances or these uh, difficult, challenging mind states that kind of overwhelm our, our mind, our consciousness. And so many people, you know, I think James even the first night asked, like, how many people had pain today? Like, almost every hand went up. How many people were sleepy? Every, almost every hand went up. Mind wandering, you know. Uh, wanting other experiences, resisting the ones that we had. And, you know, and then today is the third day. And in the interviews today, really hearing, you know, time after time, just how people feel much more here, you know, more starting to feel more settled, not as tired, a um, bit more... Uh, acceptance, allowing of what's arising. It's really, it's, 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 there is this natural progression. And in a way it shows how many of these states of mind are not as personal as we think they are. You know, in, the, we, in, in the beginning we can take everything so personally and yet we see, well, that's just what happens. You know, when we come from a busy, active, engaged life and maybe we, meditation hasn't been so central. In some ways we're not meditating uh, two, three, four hours a day, most of us. Some of you might be. But then you see that it takes some time, it takes some adjusting. And so we get to know these states of mind uh, called the hindrances, these, uh, the, the mind that is wanting experiences, that is resisting experiences that arise, the, the sleepiness, the, the dullness, the restlessness, and the doubt. You know, these are the, the Buddha speaks about these five uh, uh, challenging states that arise when the mind is not uh, unified, when the mind is not balanced. And so we get to see that. We get to know that intimately. And as we begin to, as we continue to endure and put in our time, uh, as we say, keep our tush on the cush, you know, uh, and start to cultivate some patient endurance, this beautiful quality of patient endurance, we start to get some payoff. You know, we start to experience some fruit of our effort. And as we do that, it starts to give us a bit more confidence and trust in the practice to keep going. It gives us more resources, it gives us more energy to keep going uh, along the way, along the path. But it does seem to take uh, a certain amount of willingness and um, persistence, uh, and then the cultivation of some patience along the way, and then we start to experience this shift, this change, where where the mind starts to settle more, and we have we have uh, periods where there is more calm or uh, more stillness, uh, less struggle in our meditation. So these hindrances, you know, it's. Um, a very important part of the path and is depicted in the story of the the Buddha's awakening. Uh, Particularly, and some of you may know, but particularly uh, when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree in India almost 2,600 years ago, there's a classic story of when the Buddha's sitting there uh, what what the Buddha meets, how the Buddha is challenged by what's called uh, uh, Mara, this very interesting character in the story of the Buddha's awakening. And Mara is not just alone, but Mara has armies. And Mara is uh, often depicted as, or um, explained as uh, the, the tempster or the evil one, uh, even the lord of death. Mara wants to destroy. It's really the archetype of the demon 
or sometimes the devil, that stands for these forces in our mind that paralyze us, that can overcome, take over, and we just feel, we feel paralyzed. It seems that almost all religions have some form of this character. Uh, in, Hebrew, in the uh, Jewish Hebrew uh, tradition, they have Satan, similar kind of, of character that is uh, uh, evil in some way or wants to uh, 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 create obstacles uh, for our uh, connection with God or awakening, enlightenment. In the Greek, there's the diabolos, and that's translated as one who throws something across the path. One who throws something across the path. And here in Buddhism, we have Mara. Mara. And in Pali or Sanskrit, the ancient language, it means also the killer, right? Or the forces that deaden us. That's a good one, right? The forces that deaden us. Because, and I'm, and I'm wanting to bring this to your attention because we now have gone through these kinds of experiences and it, they're so real in, in many ways. It's like, yeah, we, we really felt flattened or deadened in some way as we're walking along this path to freedom, this path to awakening. So Mara and Mara's armies you know, come about and and in the mythology, the Buddha ha- had this heroic struggle during the time of his awakening to overcome these assaults. And, and you, were, you were having a taste of this in some way. Mara, Mara uh, is man- manifest as these uh, forces of desire and, and uh, resistance and aversion and the sloth and you know, the craving and you know, all the ways that the ego mind arises through attachment of, of wanting success and wanting to be, be seen a certain way and... Uh, in a in a uh, uh, an enlightened way, or you know, all the ways that we can build ourselves up, all these are uh, forces of Mara. And in the myth- mythology, uh, when Mara came, uh, and it's sometimes depicted in Buddhist art, you'll see um, Mara and uh, his armies. Uh, throwing all kinds of things at the Buddha to try to throw him off of his seat. And it's depicted as whirlwinds and great rainstorms, showers of flaming rocks, weapons, hot ashes and sand and mud. You're slinging mud. That's the, the sloth and the torpor. You know, the, the in profound darkness, the, the, the sleep. Um, and then a great discus hurled from a huge elephant. <laughs> and and it's, 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 where does this come from? Where do these symbols come from? Because that's what it feels like in our experience. You know, it feels like there are things just being hurled at us. What these kind of these strong forces in our mind. And the Buddha struggled to be free of these obstacles. This, this is the, 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 the teaching and the, uh, the mythology that, that comes from our, this direct experience that we have along this path. So just before the Buddha woke up under the tree, when Mara, Mara was attacking him with his armies to frighten him from his seat, but the Buddha didn't move. The Buddha didn't move. He stayed strong. He stayed still with his courage and his uh, mind of perfection to be able to uh, ward Mara and the armies off. And he touched his right hand to the earth to call forth the earth goddess to bear witness that he had a right to be sitting in that awakened state and as he touched the earth with his right hand, his left hand in his lap, all Mara, Mara and all her, his armies disappeared. And you, even in this room, we have two of those symbols. This Buddha here is the Buddha touching the earth 
with the right hand calling on the earth goddess as his witness. And the, the, the uh, tanka in the back is also uh, uh, called a earth-touching mudra, where the, where the Buddha's hands are in that position of touching the earth. So this is a very potent uh, image, in a way, of this touching the earth. In fact, that was the name of our retreat, the last five days, was touching the earth because of the power that we can gain from the earth itself, this, this stability, the strength, the, the holding, the, uh, the power to bear witness. We can give over and touch the earth again and again and again in this quality of being present and aware and here on the earth again and again. The Buddha because of this, was called the conqueror because he showed that unshakability and that steadfastness in the face of these assaults. This is very, very much our experience here. Maybe maybe it wasn't quite so dramatic. (laughs) Maybe maybe for some of you it was that dramatic. (laughs) But yet we can can sense how, how this is so real. This is really what we're facing. And yet, we can conquer this. We can overcome this. Mara and his armies disappeared. So this mudra actually symbolizes, now it's come to symbolize, this union of skillful means and wisdom. The the union of how to bring about the skillful means the application of our skillful understanding and the wisdom that arises from that to ward off the forces of greed and hatred and confusion and delusion that are running through our mind stream, this current that is pulling us in that direction and the wisdom and the skillful means that can pull us in the opposite direction to uh, uh, an experience and a way of being that is free and liberated and wise and compassionate and clear and present. This is the, the union of skillful means and wisdom. This is one of the teachings of the Buddha where the, the Buddha says, uh, and the, this is the Dhammapada, one of the books of his teachings, he says, Even the gods envy the awakened ones, the mindful ones, the wise ones, who are intent on meditation and delight in the peace of renunciation. It is difficult to be born a human. Difficult is the life of mortals. It is difficult to hear the true Dharma. Difficult is the arising of Buddhas. And then he gives a prescription. He says, doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So doing no evil means resisting, desisting from engaging in actions that are unskillful, that bring about harm for ourselves and others. Engaging in uh, in what's skillful, doing what's good. Uh, well, sometimes I say defaulting to kindness. <laughs> doing what's good, turning to kindness again and again, and purifying the mind or training the mind in this way. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So our meditation isn't just about sitting and, and having particular kinds of experiences and feeling good and um, having a clear mind or a still mind. But what happens when the mind starts getting more quiet and we begin to unify the mind and the body here more in the present moment, then those are the conditions to be able to see what's actually going on. The mind is more um, mirror-like There's a mirror-like quality in the stillness so it can reflect more clearly what is actually occurring in the thinking, in the feelings, in the body so that then I can 
respond to what's happening in a skillful way so that I can act wisely. Not that I'll just, you know, keep sort of dissolving and disappearing into some great transcendent state, but so that I'm actually here and clear and I can then respond in a, in a way that is wise and compassionate and connected to the real, connected to what's true, connected to uh, reality, we might say. So we might say that this meditation we're doing is really a warm-up for our life. You know, this is not the, the destination. You know, this is really for us to learn some skillful means, some skillful tools that we can then go out and apply to this very difficult and challenging life that we live in, this, this difficult world that we live in. And certainly this is what's needed now. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if the world is any uh, more challenging than it was when the Buddha walked the earth 2,600 years ago. I, I think we can't even be compared. It just was a different time in a different world. But what we know is that this world right now is, one metaphor we used last retreat, is burning like this, it's burning. And it was interesting in using that metaphor because last week, and, and maybe is continuing, there were about 35 fires burning in, the, in California because of, well, I can't, can't say exactly why that is, but it seems that there's something happening around our climate. You know, there's something happening around our environment that is changing and shifting and, and throwing, throwing things out of kilter. We're not getting the rains in the West that we used to get in the same way. It's more so dry. And, and so we're getting more fires here. So, so in a way, there's a, kind of, there's a sense of this, of this out of kilter, of suffering, the sense of suffering in the world. And we need to, every one of us needs to apply our wisdom and our compassion as well as we can to see if we can bring about some shift, some change, some transformation in the world on so many different levels. So the Buddha gave a teaching that I want to explore in this talk tonight um, to help us look at uh, how to cultivate the sense of skillful means and how to uh, uh, recognize or, or turn away from that which is not so skillful. The discourse is called The Greater Discourse on Ways of Undertaking Things. And it's from a text called the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle-Length Sayings. Uh, for those of you who uh, are interested, it's number 46 of the 152 discourses in that text. And... Um, he gives four ways of undertaking things. And he's talking about sukha and dukkha. And Howie last night was talking about sukha and dukkha. Sukha being uh, the, the uh, poly word for uh, happiness or pleasure, contentment, um, joy, sukha. Sukha is that the uplifting uh, 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 state where we, we, we feel happy or, or joyful, contented, pleased. And dukkha, dukkha is when the, the mind, the experience is turned towards the displeasure, or the, the pain, the discontent, the dissatisfaction, the grief, or the sorrow, the pain in life. So the Buddha is talking about this, this, uh, the, the interplay of sukha and dukkha and, and, and showing the way to increase our, dukkha, our, increase our sukha and decrease our dukkha. <laughs> because that's what I think we all want. <laughs> we want to have a more, we want to have a little more sukha and less dukkha. And that was the whole of the Buddha's um, intent for teaching. That was, the, that was his compassionate 
a call to bring about more happiness in people's lives and less discontent and pain and sorrow and grief in people's lives. So in this text, he's saying, here's some tips. <laughs> here's some tips for how to actually bring about more, more sukha and, and have less dukkha. And the four ways, he goes, so he goes into saying there, there, there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. In other words, dukkha now and dukkha later. Right? And then he says there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasant now but will ripen as pain in the future. So in other words, sukha now but dukkha later. Right? So then he says there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now but will ripen as pleasure in the future. So dukkha now, but sukha later. And then the last one is there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasurable now and will ripen as pleasure in the future. So sukha now and sukha later. Which one would you like? So I want to go through each one of these, and I, I want to um, uh, actually together, I want to explore how to make these real for us and what these really mean. Because once we understand a little more about it, then maybe we can really understand and begin to implement having more sukha now that will bring about more sukha in the future. Because that's what we want. So the first one. First I should say, if the first two come about when we engage in experience when there's no wisdom and there's no insight, there's really no understanding about how things are or the way things are, really very little understanding in the, in the of the Dharma, the mind is just really filled with confusion and wrong view, and we're mostly acting out of our habits. And so you'll see how that, how that unfolds. So the first one, dukkha now and dukkha later, the Buddha has a simile, and he says, bhikkhus, or practitioners, suppose there was a bitter gourd mixed with poison, and a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, and they told him, Good man, this bitter gourd is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want, but as you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you, and after drinking from it, you'll come to death or deadly suffering. And then he drank it. (laughs) Without reflecting. And he didn't relinquish it. As he drank from it, the color, the smell, and the taste did not agree with him. And after drinking from it, he came to death a deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pain. So, this is the suffering that clearly just leads to more suffering We're in a place of pain. We're acting out to cause more pain. It's a terrible, vicious cycle to be caught in. We're just causing more suffering to ourselves and causing more suffering to others. We seem to just hurt ourselves and hurt others. So I'd like to ask you to reflect for a moment And just see what comes to mind as some examples of this. Let's see what we we gather here together to understand this uh, uh, dukkha, this way of being that brings about this painful state that brings about more pain. Let's see if anyone can think of something. Yes. Addiction. 
Yeah, although I want to say there's some pleasure, right? We think we're going to get pleasure from that. So that one might fall into the next category. We'll see. Violence, yeah, really, you know, hurting, you know, because it's a funny thing that even the violence will see where it fits because there can still be some weird pleasure sometimes that comes from that. But usually, depending on the sensitivity of the person, there is going to be the pain instant very quickly that is hurtful here and hurtful there. And I'll invite the teachers, too, to, to join in if they'd like. Mm-hmm. War. War. I mean, think of the those out in combat. There's really nothing going to be pleasurable about that. It's going to be painful in the moment, painful afterwards as well. Self-loathing. Self-loathing. Yeah, self-loathing. That's very painful, that kind of pain that we turn inward. And then it's one that will go out also to others. It'll just, will act out of that pain towards others. What was the first part? Toxic. toxic relationships that are aggressive or passive-aggressive. Yeah, instant, instant pain. There's no relief from that. There's not going to be any way out of that at all. Gossiping. Gossiping. Yeah, there's something... It feels very uncomfortable when we're gossiping. We can just... If there's sensitivity there, we'll just feel that unsettledness with it. Mm-hmm. And but it's still you'll see that some of these, James said, <laughs> James said that. Uh, but there's something that feels a little good about it. You know, how do you know, James? <laughs> they tell you. <laughs> so you'll see how some of these slide over a little bit to the second one. Suicide. So suicide. Yeah. There's not going to be any uh, sukha that's going to result from that. It's a dead end. That's what you call a dead end. Holding a grudge, grudge, resentment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really painful. Mm -hmm. And I think it's on the last retreat, uh, one of the teachers, Kitty Saro, said that holding a grudge or resentment is like um, thinking you're giving somebody else poison, but you're actually the one drinking it. Mm -hmm. It's like I'm giving this to you so that you're hurt, but you're the one that's actually drinking it. Maybe just one more or two more. Jealousy. 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 Oh, boy, jealousy just burns. Envy. Jealousy. Wanting what somebody else has. That just, there's no relief from that. It just burns. Mm-hmm. Good. Great, great examples. Um, um, this kind of righteous indignation. You know, when we're just, we feel so right about something, but there's, we're so contracted in that, in that indignation. You know, I'm right. You know, and you just feel, feel the tension in that. The, the, it seems that when we, uh, when we have this pain, when we have this grief of not getting what we want, we can sometimes even try harder to get it. You know, we become even more ambitious. We can become more oppositional. We can become more aggressive to try to get what we want. And we just start falling down this whole rabbit hole of more and more pain. And yet somehow there's some confusion in the mind where all the time we're somehow believing that, that if I get that thing or if I keep going, it's going to make me happy. That's the confusion. We think that this dukkha, the pain that we feel, is somehow going to lead to sukha, to pleasure. And if there's not enough wisdom, we're not really understanding the way of things. We don't understand that all of our actions have certain consequences, that when we act out in ways that cause harm, that's going to bring back more pain, more harm. There's no way around it. This is just a habit where we're just completely bound up and it's very difficult for any wisdom to get through. Now the second one is sukha now, dukkha later. 
it's an interesting one because I think we sort of live in this place a lot of the time. I know that I do. And the Buddha says that, here's, here's the simile for it. He says, suppose there was a bronze cup of beverage possessing good color, smell, and taste, but it was mixed with poison. And a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And they told him, good man, this bronze cup of beverage possesses a good color, smell, and taste, but it's mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want, if you like. And I love that part. That's in the, you know, if you like, you can have it. <laughs> you know, the Buddha doesn't say don't drink from it. He says, no, you, you make the choice, right? But as you drink from it, they say, as you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. And then he drank it (laughs) without reflecting and without relinquishing it. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him. But after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. So here again, we have this acting out of habit, this compulsive habit that doesn't really have wisdom in it. It's like we don't understand the way of things. We don't understand the consequences and uh, well enough that we can... uh, Uh, transform or shift, make different choices that are actually going to bring about more happiness in our life. So we keep engaging in behavior that just continues to bring about more suffering and pain. So I ask you, what are some examples of that? And I I think your example, do you think that your example fell into this one, the addictions? Or maybe both? Yeah, so there's a little of both, right? So, so this one, certainly the, uh, the, the pleasure that comes from initially from drugs or uh, alcohol, that there is a certain pleasure, um, but we can get into a vicious cycle of pain and uh, difficulty with that. What else? Yes. Overeating. Overeating. That's such a good one. That was actually one of my examples. Um, uh, I, I use the example, um, we've all sat the, the three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society and, uh, on the East Coast, and the three-month retreat is always over Thanksgiving. And so it's in the middle of the retreat, like about six weeks into the retreat, and as you know, we don't get a lot of desserts here. So <laughs> somebody said that when they were <laughs> fantasizing about But on Thanksgiving... They just go all out. I think mean, they put out every kind of pie with ice cream and <laughs> with sauces and tons of food and, you know, uh, and it's just a setup. It's a complete setup. You know, here we're, you know, living, you know, like a renunciate, you know, you know, deprivation for, you know, six weeks and then it's like this smorgasbord. And I remember in my early years of practice, I had no way to resist. I would love it, and it would be so pleasurable. And then I would just be sick. <laughs> I mean, like, I, was, I couldn't meditate. I mean, my stomach and my body was just so painful. But, uh, but you see that it's not, wasn't, that's just an extreme example. But I'm sure we all know the consequences of that. What else brings about pleasure, and then pain. Collecting material wealth. That can be, well, it can feel very pleasurable, and then we get into a cycle of wanting more and wanting more. It never seems to be enough. We can't get enough. It's just keep, it's a cycle that, it's, it's that wheel. We get like a, like a hamster on a wheel just going around. It's never enough, never enough, never enough. What else? Yes. Procrastination. Procrastination. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. There is something pleasurable, pleasurable, 
pleasurable about not having to do the work, but then it catches up with you, doesn't it? Infidelity, yes. Um, sexual misconduct, um, anything involved with sexual, um, uh, sexuality without wisdom, without compassion, without love, can lead to tremendous pain. And um, in fact, any we have here in the tradition the five precepts. You know, that's one of the precepts is not to cause harm through our sexuality. Uh, the only way we can do that is by not having enough wisdom and understanding of the consequences of our actions. And so breaking that precept, it, it, the precept itself acts as a kind of protection. If we take that precept on to not cause harm with our sexuality, it really is a protection. Because that force, the forces uh, of, se- of sexual um, desire are so strong because we're a- animal because essentially we are animal. And biologically, that's what runs through us in our bodies as instinctual forces. And so if, if there isn't wisdom to understand this animal nature, we're just going to act quite animal-like, quite animal-like, we're, you know, and we know what that looks like. So there has to be some kind of restraint. There has to be some kind of wise uh, restraint that's engaged with sexuality. Does somebody have their hand up back there? Yeah. Bullying, condescension. Yeah, those kinds of... I, I was reflecting on that there's a, a kind of a strange satisfaction, right? There's a strange kind of pleasure that could come from that kind of harm, uh, hurting somebody, especially if we're not sensitive and we're unconscious, we'll just feel good about ourselves. You know, somehow that was a good thing to do or a right thing to do. Uh, but it's, it's so harmful, and eventually that catches up with us. Any of these precepts of killing, uh, stealing, the sexual uh, misconduct, lying, uh, uh, drugs and alcohol, uh, uh, being heedless with that, it seems that any breaking any of, uh, acting out on any of those, in a certain way, can bring a strange pleasure. I mean, even, uh, you know, it's hard to talk about, but even killing can bring about a strange pleasure in a, in a, in a, a mind that is contracted in ignorance, that is not, is blind to the consequences, to the sensitivity of what's really, uh, what this nature and this, this life is about. So when we, when we reflect on each of these, we can see that uh, uh, the, the unconsciousness brings about, can bring about a certain kind of satisfaction until we go deeper and then the heart is just filled with remorse and filled with grief uh, about, about our actions. So those are the those are generally the the um, the behaviors that uh, may give us some pleasure now, but they eventually bring us such pain. Um, it requires so much mindfulness around the the movement into pleasure. It's it's like it's like it, without the without the wisdom, it's almost like a slippery slope, because we enjoy pleasure so much that we want more. We want more. And so without an understanding of, of the actual impact of what's happening for us around food or drugs or uh, ways we engage in our, with our bodies and uh, in different activities, we, 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 we may not uh, know how that's really impacting us at a, as, at a deeper level of our being. So, so these are the two that uh, are undertaking behaviors, uh, actions we undertake without wisdom that can lead us into unskillful actions and unskillful choices. And they just reinforce these patterns of greed and hatred and confusion. And there's not, we're not really looking so deeply. So it's very hard to get out until we start to bring some awareness bring some mindful attention to our actions, we may not really understand why we're uh, continuing to reinforce more pain in our lives, more difficulty 
and sorrow in our lives. So the Buddha brings these other two. He says, okay, now look at these other two ways of undertaking, uh, which involve wisdom, uh, involve acting in a skillful way, in a, in a caring way, in a sensitive way. This is what's going to bring balance in the mind. This is what's going to bring the transformation of the heart. So the first one is dukkha now, but sukha later. So the Buddha uses a simile. He says, suppose there were fermented urine mixed with various medicines. Now, now in the um, uh, Ayurvedic... In the Ayurvedic medicinal tradition, urine is actually a very potent medicine. And during the time of the Buddha, this would have been a a very fine medicine, uh, fermented urine mixed with various medicines, herbs. And uh, uh, a man, I mean, all these are masculine genders, and a man came sick with jaundice, and they told him, good man, This fermented urine is mixed with various medicines. Drink from it if you want. And as you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will be well. And then he drank from it after reflecting... (laughs) So in this... so, So now there's some reflection coming in. Ah... It's not going to taste very good. It's maybe really hard to get down, but I'm actually going to feel better. <laughs> and so he didn't relinquish it, and, and he drank from it. Its color, taste, and smell did not agree with him, but after drinking from it, he became well. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now, that it ripens in the future as pleasure. So this is the, we call it the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Right? The suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And this one, we should be able to get lots of examples. <laughs> because you've been involved in it in the last couple of days. <laughs> so what would be some examples of this? Yes. Yeah, that's a good one. Chemotherapy or invasive Western medicines. I was thinking about that today, just with some people, some people I know are going through right now, uh, having to do chemo, just what it does to them. But there's hope that they're going to get through the cancer. Mm-hmm. Getting an education. Getting an education. <laughs> Painful now, <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully pleasurable in the future. Yeah, getting an education, and particularly these days, huh? the educational system, some of them. Exercise. Exercise. That's a good one. Yeah, we have to go through pain. You know, no pain, no gain. You know, what they say. Mm-hmm. The back. Psychotherapy. Psychotherapy. <laughs> uh-huh. Psychotherapy, yeah. You know, having to uncover some of the uh, deep uh, traumas, wounds from the past. Very painful, yet very transformative. Yeah? Root canal. Root canal, canal, definitely. This, the, the modern medicine, you know, really has, you know, wonderful ways to heal the body now. Mm-hmm. What about, yes? Divorce. Divorce. Painful, yeah, painful, and then some pleasurable outcome, you know, sukha, hopefully. What about this retreat? Yes, yeah, so Brenda's saying, what about this retreat? You want to give some examples? Well, sometimes it can be physically painful sitting for a long period of time, and painful in other ways, too. Right. So this retreat... Painful, sitting long periods of time. Painful in other ways, too. Emotional pain, mental pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sukha later, remember? Sukha later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, making amends. For 
making amends uh, for mistakes of hurting other people can be really hard in the moment, but what a payoff. What a payoff. Mm-hmm. Weed grass. <laughs> it's sort of like that fermented urine a little bit. <laughs> Taking wheat grass. <laughs> childbirth. Great example. Going through childbirth. Yeah. Major dukkha. Mm-hmm. Physical. Mm-hmm. Immigrants who come to this country who go through tremendous trauma uh, to to hopefully have some light at the end of the tunnel for them. Yeah, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this, um, yeah, we with this retreat for sure. You know, that's when you can see that by putting in the the time, some effort and endurance, uh, going through. They're definitely. Uh, will be some payoff for you at the end. Any kind of discipline, yoga, exercise, that sort of thing. On the, uh, I was teaching the last retreat with these two wonderful teachers, Tanisara and Kisaro, who are two ex-monastics who were with Ajahn Chah for many, many years. And they were saying how for 10 years, every week, they had an all-night sitting. Ten years, every week, sitting all night with their sangha, with their community, and having to meditate <laughs> through the night. And that's, that sounds powerful. I mean, probably some dukkha there as well, but tremendous gain in that. The Buddha talks about a kind of spiritual, a spiritual grief. Uh, He calls it the grief or the dukkha based on renunciation. And it's really even taking it a little bit deeper. He he calls it the um, kind of the the knowledge that everything is impermanent and that everything is unreliable and that there is nothing to hold on to brings a kind of dukkha brings a kind of grief or, or a sorrow that you, we can't hold on to anything. But yet again, this is the knowledge that, that is painful to really let in and to deeply understand, but it leads to tremendous joy, tremendous sukha, as we live this more completely. This is what brings about balance. This is what brings about happiness through mindfulness and wisdom and understanding the way of things, understanding the Dharma. And then the last one, which is what we've all been waiting for, the sukha now and sukha later. The Buddha says, suppose there were curd, yogurt, honey, ghee, which is butter, and molasses all mixed together. And a man with dysentery came, and they told him, Good man, this is curd, honey, ghee, and molasses mixed together. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you. And after drinking from it, you will be well. And then he drank from it. After reflecting, right? even reflected, Okay, that sounds like a good idea, before, not just you know, taking it. And he didn't relinquish it. And as he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him. And after drinking from it, he became well. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure. So this is what's good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So maybe before I say something, I'll just ask you, what is that? What's good in the middle, beginning, middle, and end? Loving-kindness practice. Loving-kindness practice. Uh, Yeah, can't really go wrong when you're really connected with that, the heart of of love. Mm -hmm. What else? Generosity. 
generosity. Generosity is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. That was one of the first teachings of the Buddha to the lay people to be generous because it would bring you hap- it will bring you happiness in the beginning. It'll bring you happiness in the end. All forms of generosity, when the heart flows from that goodness, it brings happiness. From the beginning. Yeah, beautiful, raising children. And, and that's a very beautiful attitude that you have of the, of the, of the joy and the happiness that was in, is involved and continues to be involved, it seems, for you. It's beautiful. Having your children go to college. <laughs> yeah, happy in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. <laughs> Gratitude, yes. So the expression of the heart that uh, feels joy for what's here, uh, the welcoming of the blessings that are here, the sense of the abundance of this, what is being offered to us now. Create Creativity. Creativity, something really, really alivening, vital, joyful about being creative. Mm-hmm. I mean, any engagement with the Buddha's teachings. The sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy, yeah. Feeling happiness for uh, someone's joy. Mm-hmm. Feeling joy for their joy. And feeling happy for somebody's happiness is happy in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. Yeah, ah, uh, gardening, gardening can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this impulse. Anytime there's the impulse to follow a good feeling, when there's the good feeling of the heart, of love, of generosity, of gratitude, of joy, of of truthfulness, being truthful uh, uh, about our experience, this is what leads to more pleasure for us. Mm-hmm. The Dharma, opening to the Dharma. This is where this the sukha is now, and the sukha is later. And feeling happy when we abstain from the things that bring us unhappiness. Mm. Through the actual wise restraint, through, through that practice, we feel the joy of that. And this sukha now and sukha later, it is an open and expansive and a warm feeling that seems to continue. There's a kind of a glow, there's a, a lightness, there's a happiness, there's a warmth that we feel as we, as we follow that. And this can be cultivated, this can be encouraged, this can be strengthened through understanding where the sukha, where the pleasure, where the happiness actually arises from and how it arises and how to maintain it, how to continue. This is the joy that's based on wisdom, or insight. But the Buddha says there's also this spiritual joy. He calls it the spiritual joy. Where, where one, when one sees with proper wisdom that all things, formally and now, are impermanent. They're unreliable and subject to change. There is joy in the knowing of that. There is a joy that arises when we know that when we're not holding on to things, when we relinquish, when we let go of that grasping, of that holding, it brings joy. And that joy, as it deepens, as it grows, as it gets stronger, brings more and more and more sukha, more joy, more happiness, more contentment. So this is the teaching of the Buddha. He's saying we need to understand what conditions are bringing about our pain and what conditions will bring about our happiness and our joy. This cultivation of wisdom, the cultivation of insight. And, and this is something that we can consider every moment of our experience. Because every moment we are setting something in motion. 
Every moment there is some kind of impulse that's arising in the mind as thought or intention or as impulse to act, to speak, to move in forward in, th- in some kind of activity. And we can reflect again and again, is this activity going to bring about more happiness and more well-being and more love and more connection and more goodness and more transformation and make a difference in the world for myself, for others, and for the situation of the world and the planet? Or is what I'm setting in motion, the direction I'm going, is it bringing about more distress, more uh, discontent, more pain, more sorrow, more grief, more um, uh, difficulty for, for myself and others and the planet? And, and what's so radical about this is every moment we have an opportunity to consider that. Because every moment we are engaged in some kind of expression of our life through our thoughts, through our speech, through our actions. Even when we sit in stillness, even when we're just quiet, it is an intention, it has a power, it has an impact. The other day I was aware, in one of the, in the, in the late night sitting, when I was sitting, I was thinking, everyone just looked so beautiful and so powerful because in that moment, nobody was causing any outward harm. Everybody was ennobled in that moment because we're not causing any harm to ourselves or to others on this, on this planet. Now we might be causing ourselves a little harm. I can't really go inside your brains. I don't know really what's happening in your mind. But outwardly, there's this beautiful sense of in that moment, we're engaged in this ennobling practice of non-harming, which is a compassionate act in the world. And we, we have an opportunity again and again and again to make these choices. And if we messed up the last hour or the last week or the last year, we can begin again. We can begin again. We can begin again. Every moment is, that f- is a fresh slate. Certainly we have all the momentum from our past coming into the present, the forces of the past coming into the present. So we have to contend with that. Like the Buddha sitting on the seat before his awakening, he had to contend with all of those forces that were there in his consciousness. But because of the development of his mind, he was able to ward that off and able to sit in his power, in his awakening, and had the earth goddess as his witness. So we have this opportunity, we have this potential we have this um, uh, precious, these precious practices and teachings at our disposal. And now it's up to us. It's up to each one of us. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do with this? Because like the Buddha said, I took care of my awakening. <laughs> now you need to take care of yours. <laughs> I have the map. I can give you a map. I can uh, point the way but I can't make you walk. You have to walk. So this is the Buddha's offering to us, pointing us towards more sukha, offering us this uh, medicine that isn't necessarily always sweet tasting, but he's saying, take it if you like. Take it if you like. So let's just sit for a moment together.
resist what is unskillful, engage in what's skillful, purify your mind, train your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Thank you so much for your participation and your engagement. And so we have now half an hour for some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.